Come in. Hey, man, I'm sorry I made the train for free. Shut up! You're here! And good thing, because we've got lots of work. It's Employee of the Month with Katie Lazarus, the talk show featuring unforgettable guests with incredible jobs. And now, here's my boss and your host, Katie Lazarus. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Employee of the Month. It's terrifying. It's terrifying that morality is so relative in our culture. And today's episode is a a perfect um, reflection on that because Nick Denton, who created Gawker, the interview was recorded live at Joe's Pub. And uh, CEOs rarely give interviews. And Nick Denton is a serial entrepreneur and he's already working with Kinja, which was... um, a commenting site. Um, he's, you know, going to rise again. He was bankrupted. We, I asked him about being bankrupted, um, and he was forthcoming about about these things to the extent that um, people can be, particularly when they're in the throes of it. Um, but I was really grateful that he spoke about his experience, and we spoke about um, the mixed elements of Gawker. But I was so outraged, as so many are and and should be, when Peter Thiel uh, bankrolled these lawsuits against Gawker in an effort to strategically bring Gawker down. And the idea that a billionaire can decide which media sites get to prosper and which don't is just revolting. Um, And I'm not justifying, you know, Gawker doing certain things that are over the line um, when TMZ and New York Post and so many other National Enquirer and so many other outlets do these things. Um, But I really wish that punishments fit the crime, meaning that when um, they do something inappropriate, why don't we figure out what are the rules? What 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 is important pri- in terms of privacy? What do we hold um, in, to be important in terms of what equals news and journalism? That was not what any of these lawsuits were about. And so we spoke about that. It's, it was really fascinating. And it was also wonderful to talk about all the fun things that Gawker used to do too. And yeah, I hope you enjoy our interview. It was recorded live at Joe's Pub at the Public Theater. Nick Denton, welcome. <laughs> Hi. Nice to see you. Um, I wanted to start off with I think your first foray into journalism as I know it. Um, was it more memorable to have one of your first big pieces be published in the Telegraph or to um, be driving your mom's Mazda and have it um, hit by bullets? Um, I was kind of a, I was ashamed to have my first piece, my first big piece in the Daily Telegraph. But I, I think my father was ashamed of me. He despised the newspaper. He, he <laughs> so, was really proud of you, according to my sources. I e. your dad. I, you you really go deep. <laughs> <laughs> this is you with your dad, um, right? Now was this in in before you went off to Romania? Uh, this is in Budapest, about four years later. Okay. Uh, but, but I was in, I came to Eastern Europe, I mean, I'd been go, going to Eastern Europe in my summer vacations. Okay. And before university. And then in 1989, when the, when the revolutions broke out in Hungary and Romania yes. and Poland and elsewhere, um, I was there. And so you got to take over for, to cover the Romanian revolutions, as I understand it, in yeah. 1989. <coughs> I, was, I was so inexperienced. But isn't that usually what happens when you just have to get thrown in because people are so young? Yeah, but I was so inexperienced that I didn't even know to write yesterday for a story for the next day's newspaper. 
So I, I, was, I was writing today, almost like an internet style. So people are like running away, thinking it's happening right at that moment? <laughs> um, no, because it would usually take a few days to get a story back or... Uh, oh, so, so then it doesn't even it. matter when you write, you could say it was 1973. And ch they change it anyway. Okay, <laughs> cool. Um, but yeah, it was, it was an exciting first story. I got thrown into the deep end. And it, I mean, it put you on the map. You got two job offers. I, I got walked out of the Daily Telegraph. So wait, so can you explain that to us? Because I don't know what that means. That, unless, <coughs> unless so you're I, fired. I went back to the Daily Telegraph and they, they were going to offer me a permanent position. Uh -huh. uh, but I, I, partly out of my own snobbery and I think partly out of my father's snobbery, I'd taken a job at the Financial Times. And so I told them actually that I wasn't taking this job and so they marched me out. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, we can talk about that. That's happened again. That's a, a theme. I'm being marched out of places. <laughs> Um, so let's go back to your childhood a little bit. I didn't know to what extent your, your mother bravely survived the Holocaust. And I think um, for me, it was really compelling. And I was curious what impact, if any, it had on you, um, either professionally or, or personally. Um, I think it gave me a rather distorted view of the Jewish culture. Because for me, uh, I, I was brought up, basically Holocaust movies, Holocaust TV shows were compulsory viewing. Same with me. Yeah, my mom and loves those and Jane Austen movies, but otherwise Holocaust, <laughs> one of the two. It's like Shoah. I, yeah. I can't remember how old I was yeah. at the time, but my mom was into... She was pretty much into every single movie about that time, whether they were good or bad. You know what, Nick? That sounds very Jewish to me, actually. <laughs> Being told about the Holocaust constantly. And you know, the stories, I actually preferred my grandma's stories because they seem to be kind of more full of adventure. Okay. Um, so I, I, wasn't, I wasn't against the whole topic, but, but it's, it was kind of weird to have a, a whatever Jewishness I had, half Jewish, Yeah. Uh, that that was defined by tragedy, um, by like a tragedy that had actually my family taking the kosher plates and smashing them and saying there is no God. So. Yeah, as a more than understandable response. Yeah. Um, but it, uh, particularly going up in England, it's very different. So here... Um, you can be culturally Jewish and um, not celebrate, uh, you know, the religious aspects of it. But it seems like in England you're either are Jewish or you're not. Yeah, I think pr probably New York and Tel Aviv are almost the only cities where it's actually possible to be Jewish uh, and not go to synagogue. Yeah. Miami? <laughs> I, 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 I don't know. <laughs> Palm Beach? Um, D.C., Chicago. No, I think pretty much anywhere. <laughs> um, so I, let's, let's move on to, to um, book writing. When did, the, when did that start? Was that before doing Entrepreneur? Was that after? Um, and that's uh, John Gapper on the left, who was my boss at the time. Uh, he's a writer and editor of the, at the Financial Times. And so we, we wrote a book together. And yeah, barring, um, all that glitters. So that it, it was... It's, I found it on Amazon. I think if you're going to write another book, I don't know. Oh, it's, that's a bit mean. It's, it's 42 cents in paperback. <laughs> $9.99 for Kindle. I, just, I wouldn't bring it up if you go pitch another book. Like, I wouldn't be like, oh, I've written a couple books. You know, like, just, just be like, I just want to do this new book. <laughs> they like fresh meat anyways. They like new writers. That sounds like a good idea. 
Um, but you got to learn about the banking system. I know that your you know, father worked in economics, your mother knew about economics, you knew about economics, but I'm so impressed that you knew how to even curry money, which is, uh, you know, in 1999, to how, I don't know how old you were then. Thirty three. Thirty three. I mean, yeah. that's a big deal to um, sell companies for fifty million dollars at any age, but thirty three to me seems exceptional. I, I, I mean I think it's pretty, pretty it's pretty standard. You know is there a cloth or something like that? I'm a little hot. Yes. You're having a hot flash. Welcome to um, my life. <laughs> we'll find one. No. Um we'll get we'll get one. Does anyone have a napkin? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. It's like broadcast news. Did you guys see broadcast news? That was me in an audition. I was like sweating full on, but the casting director didn't laugh. I was like, isn't this funny? It's like broadcast news. And she's like, no. <laughs> and that is why I have such a great acting career. <laughs> um, so in all seriousness, you, you knew about economics, but there's a, a different thing about studying economics and then being really good at business, which you are brilliant at business. Um, how did you know how to sell? yourself and these companies? You and know, I, I don't think I'm great at business. <laughs> I, I think I'm, I'm pretty good at telling stories. Okay. I'm, I'm pretty good at telling stories uh, in journalism and I'm pretty good at telling stories in business. And it, and it is all a story. You know, if, anyone think, if people think that the Silicon Valley fortunes are based on kind of detailed forecasts of future profits, no, it's, a, it's a good sounding story which is pitched to journalists and they pick it up. And the buzz is sort of self-fulfilling. And I, I think, so I think journalists actually can be pretty successful entrepreneurs and investors. They tend, on the other hand, not to be that organized. Not the, the organized. What about the moral compuncture? The moral compuncture? Yeah. I, I think it depends where, where you're talking about. In the UK, I think a lot of journalists pride themselves on hey, doing their job, which is to get the story out, yeah. and leaving the moral analysis to other people. Okay. Yeah, no, I just meant with business. Like, I can certainly tell a story, but the idea of, like, selling myself for $50 million, I'd be like, I'm, I mean, you know, you don't have to give that much. I mean, you know? the, 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 the real problem <laughs> is it, it's, a, it's a very dishonest process. Business in general. No, p pitching for money is typically yeah. a very dishonest process. I, I remember pitching for money and having my first investors looking at my presentation for the second round of investors. This is, like, a long time ago. Yeah. And saying, that curve needs to be steeper. And so you just take your, your year three, three years out revenue forecast, just double them, make the curve steeper. It's gonna go <laughs> up and up and up, man. And if you don't think that's happening right now, it happens, like, yeah. it happens all the time. And no, I believe you. It's just like, hey, I gotta work on my PowerPoints. <laughs> yeah. But it, but it may- Just steepen it, the curve. And like, you know, you had this wonderful thing um, first night where there were these parties all over the place. First Tuesday. First Tuesday, excuse me. Apologize. First Tuesday, um, and it, you know, there were 60 different uh, countries, I believe, doing this. Um, and I just thought, I thought it was really neat because this was to gather people who were interested in the internet and being part of it in Europe. Is that correct? I just added more countries. Yeah, I made it, it even better, I was a Jewish mother. It was, it was cool, to, like, like a lot of things, it was really cool to begin with. It yeah. Was, it, it, was a, it was basically a company, an accidental company. It started off as a once a month, events in a bar just for internet people yeah and then investors started coming and consultants and accountants and law firms and tv companies oh, and wow. sponsor the sponsorship yeah. and and so it made it made money um but it got way less cool 
Okay. And that's pretty much how things work. And then you were out. Yeah, usually I get out at the end of the cool phase. Yeah. Um, well, and you sold it to Israelis. That makes sense that they would buy a company that does parties. <coughs> I think it was about three months after the Nasdaq crash. It was almost as oh, if wow. the ripples had taken like, time to reach Israel. And they, hadn't, okay. they hadn't quite worked that out. And so did you, was that the money that you used to build Gawker or did you get more money to create Gawker? Um, I, I got some money from the sale of First Tuesday. And, okay. and then I, I bought a building in, in, like a, in a bad warehouse oh, district yeah, in, in, in London. In London. Yeah. yeah. So you were like the, how people are in Brooklyn and they look at my neighborhood and they're like in this bad neighborhood in Brooklyn. I think, I think I'd actually just, I'd come to New York, I'd seen that Soho and Tribeca were expensive. Yeah. And the, those kind of buildings were desirable. And in, in London, they were dilapidated. And, and so I, I, I bought the building. Sounds like my apartment. Um, so Gawker, if, if there was nothing that existed, there was no web journalism in the way or web media or whatever you want to call it before Gawker. Like you were making something that didn't exist before. But I was curious, what were your... What were the newspapers and, and magazines or even websites you went to that you liked? I, I actually think Gawker has a lot of precursors. So, okay. Oh, so, so what are they? I know. Private Eye in the UK. Okay. Spy and... Spy Magazine, and, and, which was more satirical. US, New York Observer, me, Media yes. Diaries. I mean, if you ever pick up a British n newspaper... Yes. The, like, it's, it's aggressive. The diaries are kind of fun and juicy and messy. Well, and and, and I, th I think a lot of the early blogs, they reflected that kind of... That kind of journalism, just sort of like let's dispense with the kind of the pompous rendition of events and actually get to what's behind what, what's really going on. Well, sometimes it's a different level of pomposity, but what I, I would agree with, I remember studying at LSE that yeah. journalism there, that um, the writers were such good writers that um, I find that sometimes, and this was true at Gawker too, that sometimes the events sounded much more interesting than they actually were based on the person who was writing it. And I have that with The Guardian too, and I, now sometimes with The New York Times as well. Um, not all the time, but... Um, so with Gawker, I know that Gawker itself was not your most um, successful out of all the different websites, but was it your favorite? Did it feel like your baby? At Gawker.com? Yeah. Uh, no, it wasn't. What was your favorite? Uh, probably Lifehacker or Gizmodo. Yeah. Okay. So. Because you like gadgets or? Yeah, look, it, it, I have two sides to me. I, on the one hand, I'm a, I, I do like gossip. I like information. I like to understand what's really going on. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not particularly satisfied by what I, what I read. I want to know what the real dynamic, why did they really leave that job? Like, yeah. what, what, what's, what's, really, what's really happening here? And if you work in any field, like, you know that whatever is presented outside is, is rarely reflective of what's going on inside. Right. Um, so there's, there's that side of me. And then there's a kind of geeky, optimistic, science fiction reading um, and future-loving yeah. side of me. And those came together in, in Gawker. Well, in some ways, I thought that Gawker was really both thoughtful and... Um would punch up in really great ways. And I felt like you, you like, he, there are ways that were th really thoughtful um, and you had some really interesting articles. I don't, I don't know if crack is thoughtful. I don't know if I would use that word, but you were exposing a, you know, a major issue with a politician of, of Tom Ford in Toronto. One reason we shouldn't all emigrate to Canada. Um, no, he's no longer there. Um, and you started the careers of so many writers and really shepherded in a lot of journalists who would not have gotten careers. Um, 
And I loved, some things were just really funny. Like, I, there was a lot of stuff on nepotism that I found really hilarious. Um, but I, I actually think that the stories on nepotism actually get to the very, very heart of what Gorka was <clears throat> suddenly at its best. Yes. Like an expression of, I mean, I think Vanessa Gregoriadis in New York Magazine, she wrote that, uh, this is in 2007, 2008, that Gorka, Gorka.com specifically was the expression of the rage yeah. of the creative underclass. That's right. And, and I think it was an expression, kind of an inchoate expression of the, just the, the sense that the system was rigged, that no matter how hard you worked or how talented you were, if you didn't know the right people, you didn't have the, uh, a big enough trust fund, you didn't have the kind of luxury to be creative, yeah. you know, that you were going to get stuck in like one of those shitty jobs <clears throat> that pays a bunch, but you know, all your money is going to go out on rent and your future looks kind of hopeless. Well, I, and I think, I think it actually, that there was that at, at, its, at its heart. Sometimes, it, I think often it wasn't acknowledged. I think in Hamilton's work... Uh, yeah, we, we have, have a, a, a couple of them um, here, and Hamilton Nolan, it, two of the pieces are his. Yeah, I thought it was really helpful as to why the rest of us aren't necessarily getting ahead and couldn't land those jobs or couldn't be able to live on $25,000 is you know, what the New Yorker was paying at the time I, when I was I think my, my favorite ever Gorka story, actually, uh, is a story by Sam Biddle called How the Rich Get Their Kids Into the Ivies. Right. And it was actually based on uh, the uh, email hack of, of Sony. Uh, and it was correspondence uh, between Michael Linton and various friends uh, where he was trying, in a, in a perfectly nice way, like just, like just a dad trying to help out his daughter, like trying to get her into Brown, trying to get her like a nice job at a cool media company. And you can see all the friends pulling strings behind the scene. Like, all all well-meaning people like just trying to help, help each other out. But the effect of that is to give you know, someone like Michael Linton's daughter like a really unfair advantage in life and to give you know, a lot of other people um, kind of a sense of hopelessness. Well, I don't think he was like trying to give other people hopelessness. but It, no, it, 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 it wasn't the intention. But, yeah. but, but when you see a story like that, you, know, you realize quite how hollow... Uh, and archaic, the idea of American meritocracy is that... I think it applies in England, too, but yeah, um, I, I agree. Yeah. I mean, your, your system is even more classist, but, but yes, yeah, I but, agree. But, but, but the difference is that in, in the UK, uh, it's acknowledged, like, that, that's understood. Yes. <laughs> that, that, yes, that, you that, will never amount to that, anything. That there is a queen, yeah. there's an aristocracy. Yeah, that, no, that, no, that, that's there, true. There is a hierarchy. It's clear that they're, they're explicit. It's totally right. In the, in the United States, there is an official story still, I guess, pretty tattered, but still that you know, anyone can make it in this country. Let's talk a little bit about boundaries. Um, my mom isn't particularly good at them. And Are you comparing me to your mom <laughs> already? I think that Gawker, um, I loved Gawker at times. In other ways, I um, was really horrified sometimes by it. And one of the things was like the Gawker stalker maps. Um, some, you, you really, you were horrified by that one? Yeah, I, I'm easy. I, yeah, what can I tell you? Yeah. <coughs> what, what do you think of the smartphones these days? All of it. Like, so all of the, the tracking of people's movements constantly, sometimes it's a great thing. Like, they were able to catch the terrorist um, bomber who was in New Jersey and in New York, you know, really quickly thanks to tracking movements. And in other ways, yeah, it, I really hate it. Uh, but, like, when I think about Goka Stalker, which I think the, the lead time between a sighting yeah. And the inclusion of a sighting on the map uh, was about uh, an hour or two. Like, it would, it would take time. It was a slower, a slower era. I think Jessica Cohen said at the time that uh, these celebrities, they're not 
they're not trees, like they do move over time. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but if, you, if you were concerned about that, then the world that you see around you right now must be absolutely yeah, horrifying. It's hard. It's hard. Like, like where yeah, every single movement, you, you get a, a receipt from Uber showing you exactly the track that you took around the city that anyone who hacks your email could get, uh, could get hold of. Actually, Uber on the other end is what irritates me, that there's no phone number to call if um, your driver is in any way threatening or takes you somewhere where they shouldn't be taking you. I couldn't even call if I wanted to. Um, so I wish that they were doing more uh, on that end. But I, I don't. I sometimes like don't justify like bad behavior on one end just because there's bad behavior on another end, kind of thing. Um, equivocating those things. Some of the stories you broke. Um, the one with Tom Cruise. Uh huh. I loved that one where you showed the Scientology video, and I loved it because you were showing how scary uh, propaganda is, um, and I, I was really. Floored. I, I don't think I'd ever had that window into Scientology before until that. I think at the time I was actually more scared about <clears throat> um, traffic. The, we, we, just need, we just needed a scoop, just, and the need for the scoop was bigger than the fear of Scientology. So. Uh, or, or, or more, it was more important to you to get the scoop than to like, help other people understand the, the moral dilemma of propaganda and you Scientology. I, I, don't, I don't think that the, the best journalists actually go into the job thinking, you know, I'm going to help make the world a better place by shining light into dark corners and by combating com corruption. Yeah. Like a, a journalist, you know, just like a performer or like a lot of professionals. Well, I was going to say comedian. Like the best comedians tend not to have an agenda. And so I completely understand what you're saying, that you're trying to look at every angle. No, you're just trying to break a story. Oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, Never like, mind. You're trying to come out with something that's true that people are actually going to be interested in. Um, and the deeper you go, the more you pull it back, the juicier the story, the messier, the more unexpected, um, the more gratifying the experience. But, but I, I think the thing that was actually unique about like the, like the first digital media properties and you know, digital media now, it's kind of curdled a bit. Yeah. But, but the idea that you were writing that you could say everything, and that you, yes. were, you were in a direct communication with readers, that they would, they would send back story ideas, tips, uh, information, reaction. Um, that it, was a, it was a continuous conversation w without institutional barriers between, like without like, a hugely long process to get a story out there. And, uh, and, and, that, and that, that, that was, and I think it still is, a really exciting, uh, it's, it's an exciting development as a media. Um, now that Gawker has been shut down, um, do you miss it? No. How did you feel ab about... I, I, I think people... I, I, I hear about kind of phantom clicks. Like people who you know, s still just out of habit... Yeah, go like, to it? They, they go to it and then they see the... I, I think there's a black... Is there a black image on it? I, the, the I believe it's just the last posts. Post. Yeah. yeah, because the archives are still up, but you yeah. knew that. Um, how does it feel, though, to have created something and not be able to dictate what happens to it in the end? I mean, you, you didn't get to decide um, an ending for it in a way that you built this thing. And oh, then I, I was, actually just, I disagree with that. Okay. I, I, th I think the one of the like, few virtues, uh, like one of the um, consolations of this whole, uh, uh, what should we call it, saga, Yeah. Uh, is the... Actually, we did get to determine how Gorka, the arc of Gorka, that it, it, it ended, at least this particular era of it ended kind of cleanly, you know, with a post by me. Okay. And it, 
Gorka owned by some uh, corporate media entity. It would have been something very different. It would have been something watered down. Um, it maybe would have been reinvented as an entertainment, a light-hearted entertainment site. You didn't feel like you were walked out of the building. What was that? You didn't feel like you were walked out of the building. Oh, from Gorka? Yeah. No, I, I, we needed to, to separate out the business and the, and the other, the, you know, the other sites. Okay. You know, Gizmodo and Lifehacker and Kotaku and Jezebel. Uh, and Deadspin, we needed to separate uh, separate those out from the lawsuits, uh, which were um, directed by Peter Thiel, uh, mainly against Gorka.com. Yeah, and at you and at your um, journalists. Um, so I guess what I was really trying to ask you about a little bit is is what does it feel like to be bankrupted? Um, it was uh, my 50th birthday was August 24th. And, and actually that was the day that I worked out, I heard from the court that we weren't going to be able to rent out our loft, that we were going to have to sell it. And yeah, that, that totally kind of brought things home, that you know, there, are, there are real life consequences. That this is not, it's not just a battle of words, it's not just a battle of facts. Um, that, you know, AJ Dolario is... Who is you're a journalist at Gawker who got personally sued, and I think he's um, trying to give his rice cooker to Peter Thiel, because he, he yeah. doesn't have enough money to, to pay this guy. I mean, he, has a, he, has a, he goes to his bank account and then sees that there's a $230 million hold on his Chase account. When it's he an go, expensive when he rice cooker. <laughs> I thought it was disgusting, yeah. It's, uh, yeah. So, um, anyway, to separate out the the journalists who are working on Gizmodo and Lifehacker and Kotaku. You know, AJ and I have to continue to fight these lawsuits. Um, and you know, fortunately, with the sale of the business, there's enough money to do so. I, I didn't understand. Um, w- look, I, I, I don't know the, the full details of the, of the case and, in terms of that. And I, when I said it was disgusting about what happened to AJ Delario, I feel like the punishment didn't fit the crime. Um, Wells Fargo, for example, was sued. Uh, they, they had to pay $185 million, and you lost $140 million. So just to put it in that perspective. You know, I, for most of us, I don't really necessarily know the difference between a multimillionaire like yourself and a billionaire like Peter Thiel. That said, I was a little confused as to why um, there wasn't more emphasis, at least when you were on all the talk shows, about the fact that this case was covering up um, the fact that um, Hulk Hogan, Terry, excuse me, um, you know, had said all these racist things and he didn't want that video leaked or the fact that he was um, fired from the W, you know, from wrestling because of being so racist. And I, w- I guess I was, uh, I was curious why those other sides weren't brought up when you were talking about the case and doing a lot of press junkets. Um, the, look, the case is in Pinellas County, Florida, uh, in, t- in Tampa area, Hulk Hogan's hometown. Yeah. Uh, and it's a s- sympathetic local environment and a whole bunch of things... Um, the the main witness uh, wasn't even forced to testify. The the, the guy Bubba Bubba the Love Sponge. Yeah. I'm sorry, I forgot to say his full name. What is it, Bubba? Bubba. Uh, Bubba. I think this is actually his official name. Uh huh. Is Bubba the Love Sponge Clem? I apologize. <laughs> Bubba <laughs> the Love Sponge Clem. Is he who gave you the tape? Who gave you the tape? No, he, he he's the one who was like, his whole thing was taping his wife having sex with, with other men. With other men. Um, and so did he give you the tape or did she give you the tape? We don't actually know for sure oh. where the tape came from. People have different theories. Oh, so it could have been Hulk Hogan who gave you the tape. I think, I think that's unlikely. Unless okay. 
I mean, I mean, this whole thing is, Peter Thiel, I think, apparently embarked on this scheme about 10 years ago, but I think that would have required a, a huge amount of foresight to, uh, for Hulk Hogan to have done it himself. Well, the, the um, trial was very, very odd, and I remember there were references that Hulk Hogan had to his dong during it. It seemed like a very um, legitimate uh, case that he wanted to make sure that everyone knew that his penis was not as no, large. I, I think actually the interesting thing there was that... Uh, the, we have the Twitter of That Hulk Hogan, actually a little bit like Donald Trump, um, makes a distinction between his show business personality okay. and, and his real personality. Well, no, so, Trump does not make a distinction. <laughs> Uh, I think Trump actually, uh, at some points, has defended his um, what he said about women, uh, for instance, as being manifestations of some television personality and not necessarily indicative of how he'd be as president. He's he's, he's definitely made a distinction. He may say that, but he doesn't have like an alias as a name. <laughs> like Hulk Hogan has an alias. He's yeah, Terry. I, I th- I think... Hulk, in the bed, he's Terry. <laughs> When he's wrestling, he's the Hulkster. <clears throat> yeah, I think, I think he's substantially more endowed as the Hulkster. As, as Hulk versus how he is. Um, I did, I did want to ask, like, has this, because I know you're still in the, the stress of it and you've you know, yeah. lost your home and, and, and had to put off having a family and things like that. Like, what are the things that you would like to be focusing on now? I know you still have to deal with the lawsuits, but what are the other things that you would like to be focusing on? My, my real interest is actually journalism as conversation. Yeah. So I, I, like, I, I like the idea that if you tell a story that you should be answering questions about it or that there should be possibility for further discussion that like, writers and readers can be in a yes. constant, constant conversation. And the, the comments on the, uh, the Gorka sites were always my, my real passion. I, I, I liked the idea of writers going in and talking with readers. I, I didn't... The, 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 what we see right now, which is the like comment zones um, or forums like Reddit, are just seen and largely are just cesspools, just full of hate and trolls and just the worst of current society. Yeah. That the, 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 like some more civil, a symposium between writers and readers, a, par- a party um, in which writers and readers can, can participate together. That, that's always been my dream. I think in addition to ha- having shepherded the careers of, of so many journalists and made a really fun, addictive site, um, that's right, that Gawker, the, the two other things that I thought were really uh, incredible about it were the transparency you had as a uh, company that you would show people, people would live tweet the meetings, and then the second part, what you're talking about, Kinja, and how people could comment, and then even the journalists would comment back. I had never seen that. I wouldn't see that in the well, Times. And, and, and look what happens when you don't have that, uh, when you have... Um, you know, you have news being put out on Facebook and people being just confirmed in whatever prejudices they have and, and all that the discussion is there is it's a discussion, it's a, it's a mob, it's a group, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a discussion that moves towards conformity and fixes people in extreme positions. Yeah. So, so I, I don't think it's just simply a desirable, I think it's essential that somebody try to find s- some better way for people to talk online because Twitter isn't the answer. And Facebook certainly isn't the answer. And if you want to have some kind of intelligent conversation, it would be nice if it could be somewhere other than just simply in person on a table. It would be nice if it could reach and include more people. Well, I smell a great pitch. 
Um, I don't have any money to give you, so I'm not the right person to pitch to. Um, but I have no doubt that you will find someone with millions of dollars to buy that pitch. I personally um, miss so much of Gawker, and I'm so grateful that you actually came out and, and came and spoke um, to us. And I wanted to give you some gifts because I really hope that you will um, take some time um, as you pack up. Now, I know as a CEO on the go, there is no better way to spell power. Woo! than a um, bag from the Park Slope co-op. Um, so if anything is gonna spell brawn, that's this in the machismo world of Silicon Valley. Oh, I did wanna show you a picture I made of Peter Thiel who wrote a, a book which includes, 20 years ago he wrote a book about how um, women don't really know whether they were raped, but he's apologizing now that it's come under flack and I wanted to show you the picture I made of Peter Thiel who also gave 1.25 million to Trump after he knew he was losing. Um, but these are Hungarian um, poppy seed pastries <laughs> um, for you. Um, this is my lucky beggar wallet. Uh, um, I don't think you'll ever really need this, but just as a kick in the pants if you start feeling sorry for yourself. Um, I got some packing tape and a Sharpie because I know you guys have to move. Um, and um, the book Jews Without Money, I'm one of them. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome to the tribe. Um, and then I know you love science, and um, actually we're gonna have an astrophysicist on our December show, so you can come back for it, but I know you, you love science and science fiction, and this is called Mapping the Heavens, um, and it's a fantastic book about black holes and more. Nick Denton, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. That's it for this episode of Employee of the Month. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Alex Seiner for editing together. And I want to thank Russ and Daughters for being a wonderful sponsor. And thanks to all of you for listening. I hope to see you at a live recording. And if you enjoyed this episode, uh, please leave a comment on uh, iTunes or SoundCloud. Have a good one. <laughs>